0: Coordinating across organizations is hard. I'm not naive to that challenge, but it is an opportunity, I think, particularly when we are using technology and and sort of able to use shared platforms to think about ways that a particular approach can have impact beyond a particular organization and ideally bring a much greater benefit to the world as a result.
1: Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Welcome, friends, to episode 68 of the Business for Good podcast. Even though this is a show about companies that are making the world a better place, from time to time we do episodes featuring really great nonprofit organizations that are supporting such companies in the ecosystems that they need to thrive. For example, we had an episode with Isha Datar of New Harvest, the nonprofit that supports the cellular agriculture sector, and it remains one of the most popular episodes we've ever done. In fact, our last episode was with Nicole Rowling of the Material Innovation Initiative, a nonprofit working to increase entrepreneurial activity in the Alternative fur, leather, and silk space. So, if you haven't checked out those past episodes, go check them out. I think you'll like them. And in this episode, we are focusing on a different kind of nonprofit, one that is the corporate foundation of one of the world's most valuable companies. You may have heard of them. They're called Google. Of course, we all know about Google.com and its range of products that are woven into our daily lives from Gmail to Chrome to Google Maps and more. But you may be less familiar with Google.org the company's foundation that gives away $200 million a year in grants, both to nonprofits and to social enterprise startups that are trying to use technology to advance their missions. For all of you startup founders out there, note that these are dilution-free non-equity grants, or essentially free money, as opposed to investments, so listen up. And in this episode, we've got Google.org's Director of Product Impact, Bridget hoyer goslink In it, Bridget tells us what type of companies and charities they support and why, and she discusses what kinds of grant applications she wishes they saw more of. For example, we hear about Google.org's work to collect emissions data and make it public, to put up eco-acoustic sensors in rainforests to help catch those who are poaching or deforesting, and even just to give money away to those in developing countries who need it the most. Bridget has got an impressive story, and it's an empowering tale about the work that they are doing in the world. So take a listen be sure to weave this podcast a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and just maybe you'll be working with Bridget and google.org yourself in the near future. Bridget, welcome to the Business for Good podcast.
0: Hi Paul, thanks for having me.
1: Hey, it is my pleasure to be chatting with you. I am an avid Google user and I imagine at the end of our conversation I'll be a little bit more proud of being a Google user based on what you tell me that you all are up to. So I, of course, am familiar with google.com, but we are talking here about google.org, which I imagine very few people are familiar with compared to google.com. So, just for people who are the uninitiated, Bridget, what's google.org?
0: Google.org is Google's philanthropic arm, our charitable arm. But interestingly, we were actually founded in 2005, so uh, have been around for quite a while. And we were founded at the time that the company went public. So we like to think that in many ways we are, while maybe not as known as Google search and some of our big products, very much a part of the company's DNA. Um, and you know, our founders, Larry and Sergey, really put into that founder's letter the idea that they wanted Google and uh, the efforts of the company to have great impact in the world. And part of the way that, that we try to still act on that aspiration is through the work of google.org. So we primarily work by giving away funding um, and also bringing our technical expertise and our products to organizations out in the world who are already working on or looking to start really inspiring um, missions. And they are usually using technology or taking more innovative approaches. So we fund a lot of things that you would kind of think we fund, right, as Google um, and bringing the values that we have. So when you
1: say you're funding, it's not just nonprofits and you're talking about entrepreneurs. So are you giving money to startups or are you investing in startups through google.org?
0: It's a great question. We operate as a foundation more or less. So we mostly give our funding to nonprofit organizations, although we do occasionally sometimes fund social enterprises. Um, Actually recently funded a number of them through a project specifically focused on climate in Europe. We know that there's a lot of climate-oriented social enterprises out there, so we wanted to make sure that they would qualify as well. When we do that, we don't invest. There are other parts of Google, of course, that are doing investing, but we uh, give funding for a more charitable purpose within that social enterprises work.
1: Right. So if somebody wants an investment from Google, they're going to go, for example, to Google Ventures, which my guess is probably there's higher dollar um, investments there. But from Google.org, you're looking just to give grants to startups that don't take any equity at all in the company.
0: That's right. And it's a relatively small percentage of what we do. So the vast majority of our funding does go to nonprofit organizations. Many of them are operating like startups. So They're very innovative in what they're doing. They're They're building new products and putting them out in the world. Um, and we award about two hundred million dollars in um, in cash grants each year, so it's a pretty substantial offering for those organizations. Although the individual grants are, you know, uh, a piece of that.
1: So two hundred million dollars, obviously, really big number, Bridget. Like, what's the average grant size that you're giving out to any particular grantee?
0: It ranges, as you would expect, it might um, everything from you know maybe two hundred fifty or five hundred k, all the way up to say five million dollars or so.
1: Okay, so we're, I mean, even at the lowest end for a nonprofit organization, um, for most of them, we're still talking about a pretty substantial chunk of change here. So let's talk about how you came into this, Bridget, because, you know, you've not worked in the for-profit space, um, uh, considering Google is a for-profit. Of course, I know that you're working for the foundation, but um, you come from the nonprofit world. So tell me a little bit about your background and what you were doing prior to your life at Google.org and what made you make that, want to make that switch?
0: Yes. As you said, Paul, my background is primarily in the social sector. I've worked actually across a lot of different types of organizations and um, everything from the federal government, where I was working in international development. I worked in some nonprofits. And then I also did strategy consulting for nonprofits and foundations, which was a great opportunity to really get a sense of what's happening in the sector and frankly, where I might see opportunity for uh, new approaches to be brought into play. Interestingly though, I have an engineering degree um, as an undergrad and, and I did some work in engineering in that early part of my career with a nonprofit I was working for. And so the opportunity to come to Google in some ways has is, is really been a chance to bring together that early experience and interest I've always had in technology and the way in which it can hopefully help to create new solutions in the world with the, the experience that I've had kind of working through the social sector and uh, really is an opportunity for me to say, hey, we're really changing the world and the way that things operate um, with technology day after day. And how can we bring that same technology to the world's most pressing issues? And in a way that really does that in partnership with organizations who have been working on those issues for years on the front lines and really deeply understand the needs in a community so that we're not you know, coming in with an idea that is perhaps Sounds good on paper, as we sometimes are apt to do as technologists, but actually in reality wouldn't play out. So I've really enjoyed the opportunity. I've been here almost eight years and it's been a chance to really come back to those engineering roots. And I love to work with our technical teams and and really get into the weeds of some of that while still, of course, um, continuing to drive impact.
1: Yeah, well, we're going to talk about some of those examples, um, including some of those botched examples, like what you're talking about, where sometimes um, the aid is not going as intended. But I just want to ask you, in in an interview you gave, uh, yeah, I'm quoting you here, you said that the social impact organizations that you were working with um, prior to your Google life, they said that they weren't Effectively deploying technology to advance their missions was that something that you were thinking at the time, or did you only come to realize that after you had been at Google? Like, when did you start sensing that uh, that sense of frustration that you had about the lack of technological implementation on some of the uh, nonprofits that you were working with?
0: It was it was before I came to Google, and part of the reason that I joined was really to be able to to take what was really more of an inkling of a thought or an observation than, uh, you know, a full well thought out um, research thesis uh, and really explore it in the time that I, that I have here. I would say the part of that is that, you know, I sit, I'm sitting in the Bay Area in Oakland, California and in the air around here, right, you hear about, I had friends, I know of uh, organizations who are, who are really using technology. And this was really even before we got into some of the more recent advances around machine learning and artificial intelligence as well. And it is such a resource-constrained environment in the in the social sector, in the nonprofit space. And so as I sort of watched this juxtaposition of organizations working on critical issues like youth unemployment or uh, transitioning youth out of foster care to a successful sort of next step and next stage of their life or suffering, um, uh, populations, it was just clear that there should be an opportunity to use technology more. But one of the main factors for it not being something that organizations is using is not because they haven't had the same thought or that they don't necessarily, um, want to be exploring that it's that funding is actually relatively scarce for supporting those kinds of technical projects and talent is scarce as well. And so the opportunity to come to uh, google.org where obviously uh, a lot of what we fund is technology. And as I mentioned previously, we are bringing some of that technical talent to bear on these problems and in partnership with these organizations. was just a, a way of kind of taking that as I said, more inkling of a thesis than a real thesis, into practice and and hopefully building forward um, more structures and opportunities in the ecosystem, while also demonstrating, and this is something we hope to do, demonstrating to other funders and um, uh, kind of parts of this system that funding technology is possible and that uh, it really can drive great programmatic outcomes. It's often the case, right, that organizations will be thinking about technology in the context of say, an IT department or that funders are thinking about it that way when they see something like an ask for, you know, technical infrastructure or a technical staff member in a proposal. And we don't think about technology that way in the way that we use commercial products. I don't think of technology as just an IT um, solution in my life. And so I think we are still, we have made a lot of progress, um, but, you know, 10 years ago or so, I think we were still very much trying to make the case that technology had potential for program outcomes to actually change the way that a mission could be realized rather than just, you know, allowing someone to do email.
1: Yes, although uh, I, I certainly am grateful for Gmail in my life, which definitely uh, makes my life better. Uh, the snooze function, I highly recommend for anybody who hasn't used that in Gmail. I, I am a master snoozer of so many things in my life. So that is certainly one IT solution in my life for which I am grateful. But I realize that, you know, what you're talking about, Bridget, is actually using technology to solve the problems that these nonprofits are trying to solve, not just to make their own work easier, but to actually make it more effective. And so I'm wondering if you want to offer some examples. Um, let you know, just take, for example, in the environmental realm, since I know that um, part of Google.org's funding is going to a lot of environmental nonprofit organizations. So what are some examples of ways that you think that environmental nonprofits can utilize technology better uh, as evidenced by the work of your grantees here?
0: Yes. So I have a a somewhat endless list of examples, but I will highlight a couple. Um, hey, well, we,
1: we got you. No, we got no time limits, Bridget. <laughs> you can keep going. So as long as they're interesting, people will keep listening. <laughs> That's
0: great. Yeah. So I'll I'll will share kind of two examples that are in um, at kind of different operating at different scales. So the first is an organization that we funded actually back in 2018. We ran an open call focused specifically on organizations that were using AI and machine learning to better advance their missions. Uh, This is an an area of technology that I think we obviously are seeing a lot of progress in and impact in commercial products and our businesses and our personal lives, but where there's still, I think, a ton of untapped potential um, in the nonprofit space. And so we ran this open call to surface ideas that might be out there and, and to support the best of them. The organi- One of the organizations we supported through that is called WattTime. And they, along with Carbon Tracker, an organization based out of the UK, proposed based on some pretty early analysis they had done to use image processing algorithms um, and satellite imagery to essentially get a better picture of power plant emissions. Currently, the way that we monitor power plant emissions um, on site is by actually placing a sensor on the smokestack, or you know, putting other output, and using that sensor then to drive data, so that we have a better sense of what's happening at a power plant in a given place in time. But it doesn't take much to imagine how complicated that is to scale globally. Uh, and of course, emissions is something that we need to have a global picture of. And to date, we really haven't. We haven't had necessarily all the information that we would ideally have to enforce. Uh, things like the Paris Agreement, to help drive policy decisions, to even just understand what's happening um, in the world today. And so we, we gave them a grant, so it was a $1.7 million grant through the challenge to uh, essentially build models that would take satellite imagery and um, use that to estimate the emissions from thermal power plants to try to see, hey, could this be a technology that then is widely available? Of course, we have imagery from all around the globe, uh, and it could potentially supplement some of the data that we're getting from, from these sensor networks. We also, as I mentioned, a critical piece of what we try to do is bring our experts to the table. So we brought in a team of Google.org fellows who worked full-time with them for six months. And they um, identified a bunch of publicly available image sets, built the pipelines to, you know, ingest those, working closely, of course, with WatTime and their team. And bringing in emissions data from three different government agencies, it was actually uh, pretty early in this project that we, when we invested this, weren't really sure if it was going to work. They had a very early stage proof of concept, as I mentioned, some research they'd done. And I remember, you know, talking with the team and saying, "Look, this is this is a bet we've made. We would love for this to be successful, but we're also it was one of the riskier ones we had made in this um, in this call." And we spoke with them you know, in the early months and I remember talking to them and they said, I think this might actually work, <laughs> which uh, one, always good to hear that. But as we started to think about it, um, it became apparent as well that if it could work for power plants, what if we could actually build an open platform, a transparent platform that would look at all sources of greenhouse gas emissions, human sources? And so we started to, at the same time in parallel, Uh, field incoming from other organizations who said, hey, I saw y'all are doing this for power plants, but we're actually thinking about this for the shipping industry or the cement manufacturing industry. And wouldn't it, you know, are you, how, what are you learning? How are you thinking about it? And maybe there's something we should do together. That work ultimately evolved into the Climate Trace Coalition, um, which was announced last year. And it is now working to realize that vision, right? So, how can we now have a transparent picture of all human sources of greenhouse gas emissions, drawing on satellite imagery and other images and models that people are building, um, so that we can have a picture of what's happening in our globe? Um, and that is something that we're they're all planning to launch the beta of that platform later this summer. So we're kind of anxiously working with them and thinking with them about how that will play out. But to me, that is the, the sort of ultimate opportunity um, as we think about technology and AI in particular. How can we better understand our world and then drive the action that we want to have as a result?
1: All right, friends, I hope you're enjoying the interview so far. And let me just briefly interrupt to let you know that this episode is sponsored by the Very Good Food Company, more commonly known by one of their brands, the Very Good Food butchers. I can't tell you how many times listeners of this show ask me how they, not as captains of the venture capital industry with hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to invest, but as mere mortals like you and me, can invest in great companies making the world a better place. Well, friends, ask no longer because The Very Good Food Co. is now the second publicly traded plant-based meat company in the United States, meaning you can go online and buy shares in their company today. You can check them out at their ticker, V-R-Y-Y-F. Again, that is V-R-Y-Y-F. For full disclosure, even before they were a sponsor of this show, my wife, Tony, and I became shareholders ourselves since we were so impressed both by the array of really great plant-based meat products that they were offering and the all-star team. they have assembled over there at the Very Good Food Co. These folks are growing fast. They're building production plants, a restaurant, and more. They even just passed their first ever $1 million revenue month, showing that this startup is no joke. Whether it's steaks, ribs, burgers, sausages, pepperoni, or more, you name it, the Very Good Butchers are making and selling it. They even do plant-based salmon. And yes, before you ask, plant-based cheese, too, via an acquisition that they made. While they are based in Canada, they have production in California, too, and yes, they're traded in the U.S., and they are rapidly expanding the reach of the animal-free meats that they are selling. I love their messaging, which focuses on how they are proudly butchering beans, not animals, but they still embrace that artisanal butcher aura in their imagery and in their packaging. So go check them out at verygoodfood.com to see all the brands they own, the good work they're doing, and how you can become a shareholder yourself if you're so inclined. And of course, tasting is believing. So make sure to order a few things from their site and prepare to be wowed. Now, back to the interview. Well, that's really impressive, Bridget. I I love the idea of uh, monitoring greenhouse gas emissions so that we can not only monitor them, but hopefully also start reducing them once we have that Information that we can measure it. Uh, There's some other examples that I was also really impressed by. So um, tell me about some of the things that you're doing using AI in forests to protect deforestation and helping to protect wildlife diversity and so on, because that to me seemed like a a really compelling uh, case example of where AI can be utilized in a way that directly saves lives here.
0: Yes, we have been doing um, a number of different projects on on reforestation there's a couple of grantees. One in particular that was also a part of this AI challenge is, is focused on, um, on forests, but also on the biodiversity within those forests. And it's particularly leaning into the work on bioacoustics that helps us to, again, monitor and understand the, the world around us. So that organization is called Rainforest Connection and they are uh, a really interesting group that started out by actually placing monitors into trees. So they've built a pretty um, simple but but powerful solution that uses mobile tech and kind of existing telecommunications infrastructure to actually place monitors, you know, literally physically in trees. So picture a box with a little uh, solar panel to keep the power on, that someone has climbed a tree and put there uh, in partnership with usually local groups or who, who are looking after them, and then they're capturing live audio streams. That is both able to uh, give us a sense of potential threats. So they started out trying to use um, take that audio feed and use AI models to within that audio detect when perhaps they heard a chainsaw or something that sounded like you know maybe a large truck coming in. Uh, So really trying to actually say, hey, there's potential deforestation happening in this place. It might be something that someone should take a look at. They also, though, are recording the rest of the forest soundscape with that device and um, have started, you know, they sort of started with this one thing of, hey, let's build this model to detect this sound. But of course, with these audio feeds that they've now started to install around the world in um, multiple continents, They're working with researchers and scientists to build a platform that can allow them to catalog and analyze that bioacoustic data across species, so bird species, monkey species that can be heard. All of that, obviously, with the quest of just giving us a better understanding of what's happening with biodiversity, as we know our forests are changing um, uh, and continuing to essentially provide that information for local groups, but also... Uh, use it to, as we just spoke about with the other example, inform policy and and broader understanding.
1: Yeah, it seemed like, you know, the original plan of just putting cameras and trees and having humans have to watch all this footage. It's kind of like having like a, a huge ear with a very little brain, right? Like you, you can only watch so many hours. You can only have so many people watching it, but that you need some AI to be monitoring those actual sounds so that you can have some realistic chance of in, in increasing the brain to be able to uh, take in as much information as possible. Is that how, how you would view it?
0: That's right. Exactly. AI is good at doing, you know, discrete tasks, highly repeatable discrete tasks, right, in a way that, you know, of course, if you needed to discern out lots of different sounds at the same time, it would be potentially challenging, although we are work, they're working to train on that. But yes, if they want to detect species X or this particular sound, then yes, you can listen to hours and hours and days of footage. Um, in fact, they recently uh, shared some numbers with us that they had been working with researchers who have been trying to do this work of you know, listening, tagging, uh, ingesting this kind of information for their research. And with the tool that that Reinforced Connection has now built and some of the early models that they've put into that that have existing species detection built in, they're now able to take a three-month process and reduce it to weeks. So even that saves, you know, tremendous amounts of time.
1: Oh, that's great. That's really great. So there's a lot of ways that it's pretty easy to see how technology can be used to help improve the environment. We've talked about so many of them on other episodes of this show. So I don't want to do too much for folks who want to who want to listen to past episodes. There's lots of companies out there that are doing some really interesting things, as well as nonprofit organizations using tech to try to solve serious environmental problems from climate change to deforestation and more. Um, but there is one type of philanthropy that you're doing, Bridget, that I really caught my attention because of the controversy associated with it. And increasingly, people are starting to think this is a pretty good idea, um, even though in the past it it was uh, viewed in in a less favorable way. So tell me a little bit about money that you give, for example, directly. I think the charity is called Give Directly, isn't that it? That where you're literally just giving money to people as opposed to uh, giving some service. So, what? Why was it controversial? Why are you doing it? And why do you think it's a good idea?
0: So, as simple as it might seem, giving cash to people is something that we don't often talk about and think about in the social sector. We think we, we actually should be doing is is running programs. We should be setting up uh, support services for people. And in many cases, those services and supports are extremely helpful. But I think a number of over many years now, people have been asking the question, what if we just gave people cash? What if we gave them just literal money in their bank account? How would that affect what what is possible for them? It really takes a different frame than kind of the typical response uh, to, I think, do that uh, shift. So the conversation around this has really been an evolving one. And, um, and I think one of the ways that we, we often think about kind of how controversial this has felt is that in some ways, I think cash transfers, this idea of direct cash to individuals is probably the most studied social intervention ever. So <laughs> we have more research studies available for this particular, uh, particular intervention than anything else. And still we are having a conversation. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Who are the individuals? Like who who are the individuals? How much cash are they getting?
0: Yeah. So there's an organization that we've funded that you mentioned called Give Directly, who has really been at the forefront of this work. And we've we've worked with them now since uh, since 2012. So we've been partnered with them for a long time. They are giving in in cash transfers to individuals who are in extreme poverty. Um And they particularly have started their work in East Africa. So uh, in Kenya, they've expanded to Rwanda. um, And they essentially work with kind of national government to come in. And then they identify individuals using a, a pretty structured process. And they, you know, send folks out and say, hey, we're going to give you some cash (laughs) usually people are quite surprised to get that uh, person coming by their door. So there's a bit of an education process about what it means and the fact that there's nothing expected from them in return. Um, And then then they do, and they uh, have utilized part of what's made this possible. And part of what's made us excited about it is that technology is critical here. So uh, part of what's made this possible is mobile money becoming more pervasive. So it's much easier to actually get that funding to uh, individuals at scale. And so they transfer them um, funds, and then per these research studies, they do some tracking of how it's spent, and it's been um, the you know, outcomes from the cash transfers for Give Directly. They've done a number of research studies. There are other groups that, of course, do this work as well, are pretty remarkable. They see increases in income generation. They see um, improvements in health. They see... Um, That people are investing in, you know, maybe long-term assets for themselves, and buying uh, some livestock, improving their home, paying for school fees. So kids are maybe more likely to go into school again if they've been if they've been not attending. So all of that, um, quite positive. One of the things they've also studied is what do people not tend to spend money on um, that you might assume they do. So I think you know very early on, especially lots of reaction to this of like, oh, people just waste that money on things, right? They'll buy alcohol, they'll buy other stuff that we don't want them to buy. And the data on that is also pretty impressively negative of of, all of those thoughts. So um, most of those things are not seen. Of course, sometimes that does happen, but for the most part, people are spending it on things that improves their lives. And I think the sort of flipping the frame to say, hey, that's actually really a a great way to consider um, supporting people is just by allowing them to choose what they need um, is really powerful.
1: Yeah, I, I, that's certainly the criticism of, of it, or the concern that's raised is, you know, well, what if they don't spend the money on things that you know we think they should have? Right, that's a uh, a concern that you hear, but the evidence does show that you know following these mobile payments that actually, it doesn't seem like that's a, a big part of the spend on, on this money. So one more way that technology is is helping to prove that point, actually. So that's a, a pretty uh, compelling case. So I want to talk about the other side, Bridget, uh, just briefly about AI, because, you know, there's a lot of folks now who are basically saying they think, you know, AI is this dangerous thing, right? that it's going to uh, lead to some dystopian or apocalyptic outcome. You I presume have a um, have a more optimistic view of it, so what would you say to somebody who is expressing that concern that they think that there's you know this concern that you're gonna have a company like Google that is um you know spending a lot of money on advancing AI um, help assure the the skeptic out there that you know AI is going to be a force for good in our world more so than it'll be a force for bad
0: I think that what the thing that I try to remind myself is that this is all still up to us. We are still very much in the early days of thinking about AI's development. And it is critical that we as society, that we as a company, that anyone who's working on AI is taking a responsible approach and is clear-eyed about the potential risks. But similarly, I also believe deeply that we need to be clear-eyed about the potential benefits and the opportunities there and the potential uh, failure to realize that opportunity and the negative impacts that could have. Right. So if we if we are not addressing our biggest challenges with some of our innovative technology, then I, of course, firmly believe that we're potentially missing out on on impact we could have. It is, I think, important to be asking questions about how AI is uh, being used in our society and you know how it's impacting people. And it's a critical part of how we think about our work. So both examples I mentioned today use AI and machine learning. We've make sure that those are in line with our AI principles, which are uh, principles that we've put out publicly. And we've consulted with groups to sort of help not just say, hey, in general, we're on those principles, but what are the practices that need to be built into the workflows and the sort of AI technology development to make those principles a reality? It's been interesting too to see organizations that we're working with start to become not just users of AI, but also uh, thinkers about how AI is showing up in society. So, and I think that's a benefit. You know, we see more organizations that have social impact at the core of what they do at the table as AI developers themselves. I think that will advance this whole conversation um, and help us see more of those societal benefits while continuing to be clear-eyed and mitigating the potential risks.
1: Cool. Very cool. Well, speaking of seeing more, Bridget, you, know, you, are, um, in, you are disseminating literally hundreds of millions of dollars a year out primarily to nonprofit organizations. So what do you wish you would see more of in terms of folks who are applying to you? If there's somebody out there who has either an idea for a nonprofit or they already have their own nonprofit, uh, what are the types of organizations that you wish that you were getting more proposals from?
0: Well, I have the benefit of, as you said, seeing a lot of different ideas. And one of the things I try not to do is to to sort of cut off potential ideas that most of these things I've never thought of that come across my desk. <laughs> um, and and I'm lucky to be able to to have the privilege to look through them. I do think one of the things that would be we would love to see more of, and that I think is happening more and more, are frankly efforts like cl- the climate trace example that I shared where we have an organization or set of organizations coming together and saying, hey, actually, we each are doing our own little piece of this puzzle, but we feel like collectively there's an opportunity to do more. And coordinating across organizations is hard. I'm not naive to that challenge, but it is an opportunity, I think, particularly when we are using technology and and sort of able to use shared platforms to think about ways that a particular approach can have impact beyond a particular organization and ideally bring a much greater benefit to the world as a result.
1: Okay, nice. Well, speaking then of bringing a greater benefit to the world, are there any particular companies, Bridget, or nonprofit organizations that you wish existed that are solving some pressing problem that is concerning to you? Is there any um, groups out there that you wish maybe somebody listening to you might be inspired to start? Uh, Have you thought about
0: that? One area that we've been thinking a lot about at Google lately is um, is 24-7 clean energy. So we made a commitment last year to reach 24-7 clean energy. So this would mean every hour, all the energy that we're using to power our work at Google is, is clean. That's quite a challenging goal. We've already you know, been operating 100% renewable, using offsets and things like that um, for many years now. But I would say we are. It's quite ambitious to get to this goal by 2030, and so we've been thinking about not just, of course, what might we do, but what is, needs to happen out there in the world. What ecosystem um, pieces need to be in place to actually get to that, so that we could operate in that way, but also, of course, more entities could operate in that way. Um, we've got some interesting challenges, I think, around data, uh, around you know, just knowing what is going on on the grid at any given point around certification. So we're exploring some ideas in that direction. Um, but I think that is in some ways a, n- a next frontier for some, so much of what we will need to do on climate. So not just for us, of course, but for everyone. And so we're interested in ideas that are working in that direction.
1: Cool. Interesting. Well, you heard it here. Uh, If you are interested in talking to google.org more about that and you want to start something like that, maybe you and Bridget will be talking about that. So you can get in touch with them uh, about that idea. But Finally, Bridget, I just want to ask you, uh, for folks who really are impressed by your story, having gone from um, the nonprofit world to now essentially running this uh, very large foundation to help other nonprofits, are there any resources that have been useful for you that you'd recommend to folks that are considering something similar in this journey?
0: Yeah, so I would say that I, am a, I really have benefited from a lot of different experiences and both my own experiences, but I think also just learning from the stories of others. So um, I don't read a lot of, you know, business or advice books, uh, but I do listen to the, and read a lot of stories of individual people who I think have had impressive, world-changing impact. Two that come to mind, one probably maybe both obvious, but um, but that are uh, kind of always in my mind. One is um, Just Mercy from Bryan Stevenson who, of course, has had tremendous impact, not just in the work that he does day to day, but I think in also reframing the narrative around racial justice in the United States. And the other is um, a book by Samantha Power, who was just nominated to be the the new U.S. Agency for International Development Administrator called Chasing the Flame. It's about um, Sergio Vieira de Mello, who was a Brazilian diplomat, U.N. diplomat, uh, who was um, unfortunately killed too young in Iraq in 2003, and he uses some. He's it's a story of the the many peace deals he's brokered and um, the interesting life that he led through that time using actually I think some pretty controversial methods. They're two very different people, um, and and I like to read a lot of sort of memoirs and biographies like this because um, I think it helps me see one that there's no one way to do everything. Um, and two, I think always just inspiring to think about the potential impact that any one individual can have. In these case, you know, pretty aspirational folks. Um, but I think the the tactics and the, the way that they show up in the world and the, the way that they do their work um, are both things that I kind of carry with me in the way that I do my work as well.
1: Well, that's fantastic, Bridget. We'll include uh, links to both of those in the show notes for this episode. And I too share your passion for reading biographies and memoirs because I really do uh, take a lot of solace in reading um, not only about people who have made a big impact as an individual or as a leader, but also about their failures. I, I really enjoy reading about the struggles that people who I admire have had because it reminds me that they too are, are mortal humans, just like I am, and that they too have fallen or they too have made mistakes or whatever the case may be in in, in their particular story. And it reminds me that people who we lionize are just people and that the impact that we can each have is, is really great. So uh, I look forward to uh, promoting both of those books on this Uh, episodes page. And hopefully other people will read them uh, based on your recommendation here, Bridget. So I really appreciate all you're doing to help make the world a better place via google.org. And I'll look forward to continuing following all of the organizations that you're funding and hoping that they'll continue doing great things out there as well. So thanks so much, Bridget. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Paul. Really glad to have the conversation today. And thanks for all that you're doing to share more stories like this with the world and hopefully inspire more people to take up the mantle and join us.
1: Let us hope. Let us hope. (laughs) Thanks, Bridget. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.